All right, welcome to the Gavin Cabin. Um, this is a very special episode and special edition. Uh, today is the day before Bell Let's Talk Day, which is a, uh, a national campaign to end the stigma around mental health. And I have a very special guest, Randy Lynn. She's back again. Uh, last time we chatted, we had lots of fun and jokes and ha-has. And uh, not that today is a, a dark topic or anything, but it's a little more serious. Yeah, it definitely um, is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, mental health is something we're both very passionate about. And uh, I've talked about my kind of journey with it in past podcasts. Um, but today, wanted to get your take on it and hear about your journey and uh, just kind of how everything happened for you and uh, struggles and successes and Everything just because uh, the whole point of Bell Let's Talk Day is talking about it. That's why it's called yeah. Let's Talk Day. <laughs> exactly. All um, right. Well, let's talk about it then. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to let you kind of take it away for the first little bit. And then uh, there was a few things um, that I want to dig into later, but sure. I'll let you take it away for a bit. All right. Well, thank you. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people know me as Randy Lynn. A lot of people know me as Randy. Some people know me as Cadet Curry. I wear a few hats. Um, Justin and I know each other. Uh, if you listen to our last podcast, I used to be in radio, and that's where he and I connected. But there's a whole lot of story between all those different personalities and a lot of in-between. And some of it is fun and hilarious and like you couldn't write it even if you tried. Uh, and then some of it is really not hard, but, but hard. It's a little bit more of a, a struggle. I usually am a person who covers things up with humor or completely shuts down and like pulls away and is super shy and it's a weird little pendulum. It's one or the other and there's not a lot of in between. So yeah, this is my story. I've always been super passionate about Bell Let's Talk Day. I used to work for Bell Media, so it was a great way for me to be introduced to the whole campaign, and I love it. And as you said, Justin, it's to take the stigma off of mental health, but also just I kind of look at it as a moment where everybody drops the cloth just for a second and says, like, me as well, also me. I do this. I have this. I struggle here. And then all through the rest of the year, a lot of people still kind of uh, maybe cover that up a little bit more or a little skillfully. So yeah, so this is us kind of just dropping that cloth a little bit and talking about what's behind it. So behind the, uh, the uniform, behind the smiling voice on the radio, behind just the bubbly Aunt Randy, whoever it is that people might think they know me as, there's, there's a lot more underneath there. So we'll try to unpack that as skillfully and organized as possible. So where would you like me to start? There's no organized anything here. <laughs> there really isn't ever. Um, yeah. So something that um, I think is a really big deal. And I talk to schools about this a little bit um, when I do school presentations is just the, the struggles that young people go through, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's bullying or just the shit you have to go through when you're growing up. Or whatever, because yeah. growing up's hard. Like it, it is. <laughs> it really is. And so maybe let's just start there. Let's start wherever you want to in your early life, and right. just 
kind of kind of trace it back i'm not a psychologist but i sound like i am let's start from the beginning shall we all right i'll lay down and let's discuss this (laughs) um okay well to start down at the beginning uh, it's way back there but equally as impactful on a lot of my mental health today was those formative years those really early years i had a great childhood when you hear some of the details to it you're gonna probably think that i'm on crack if i thought it was absolutely great but it was i grew up on an acreage i had a big sister my parents were awesome and present and loved us and the whole shebang um where things kind of started to go off the rails for me was middle school we had just moved from one small town to another which is never easy um so with some of those small towns it's like if you weren't born in them if you don't eat breathe and sleep a certain sport or a certain thing then you just don't quite fit and i never fit i i had lots of people who liked me individually but the moment you put me in a group with everybody they didn't like me and i don't know what it was i distinctly remember walking um to curling lessons one day because that's something you did in southern manitoba after school we were walking from the school to the rink and one of the girls said to me she's like wow like you're actually really nice and and cool do you want to walk with me to curling every time like it was tuesdays or something every tuesday i said sure and she's like just could you not tell anybody else about it it's like yeah so that was kind of like in a nutshell middle school it was a lot of bullying Uh, a lot of you're dumb you're stupid you're ugly you're a slut, like all of these things. Never kissed a boy in my life, but I was a huge slut apparently. I don't, I don't know, I got nothing. Um, I was not the smartest girl in the class by any means. My grades were not the grades to beat. My grades were maybe the, the ones to get a little ahead of, right? Like I was skating by on 51s, not, not giving a shit about it at all. My locker would get broken to textbooks ripped up. So then I'd have to pay for them. My jackets and stuff thrown in dumpsters, my gym clothes in the toilet. Like it was a pretty, pretty rough little middle school interaction and came to a point where uh, my parents recognized that I was either going to completely fall apart or I was going to completely compromise my morals and ethics just to have friends. So I was going to join the party crowd. I was going to start having boyfriends and all of that entails in a small town. I was going to start turning the other way and and ignoring things that I was strongly convicted of, like standing up for other people or being kind. And that was going to start to fall by the wayside. So we moved again. uh, We moved about every seven years until I finished high school. So four moves, three moves. And uh, then we ended up in a a new town. A private school is where I ended up. My sister went to public school. I liked the smaller class sizes. I had more of a a faith background, if you will. So that school just fit me better. The other one fit her better. Uh, My first three months at the school, the youth pastor started texting me and propositioning me for sex, saying, we can meet in my truck. We can do this. We can do that. And go here before youth after youth and um by this point i had already been introduced to the world of sex not by my own choosing but by a babysitter in the last 
community or the last town when I was five year old, five years old, seven years old, somewhere in there. Timeline is a little murky. Um, there's a lot of things that I'm still working through with that one, trying to piece it all together, but it was after school. It was fairly regular, was highly invasive and it went on for a couple of years. And, um, so I had already been thrust into this world. I was already probably little to my knowledge starting to spin <laughs> and I just didn't realize it. Nobody realized it because it just looked like a kid growing up. Um, so I kind of didn't say anything at first and I let it go and I, whatever. And then it just hit a point where I was like, no, I should probably tell somebody about this. So then I, I brought it up. It was buried by the church. Everyone moved on. I didn't realize it was buried by the church. I had assumed the proper actions had been taken. Little to my knowledge, my parents weren't contacted. They knew nothing about it. The police weren't contacted. They knew nothing about it. And I only found out that when he recontacted me at like 20 years old and I called the police and said, look, he's not supposed to be talking to me. This is what happened. They're like, we have zero information on this. Like this has never been reported. So, um, yeah, so that was, that was the second instance. I would say the second trauma, probably, um, not counting the bullying, the bullying, pretty much stopped in the new school, in the private school. It was a really great school. My friends were awesome, all of that. I never quite felt like I fit in. Probably a little bit of a self-sabotaging thing from the old school, but I always felt like I was the pity friend. Like I was the, the not born and raised Christian Bible person. So like I was the sympathy friend because they're good Christians. They should be friends with the sinners and the bad kids, right? That's what I thought I was. To this day, I still struggle with that. And one of my friends from high school will tell you that, that every couple years, her and I end up having this big talk about how like, I feel like I'm never actually have been a friend or will be like, it's such a, it's such a quicksand for me, relationships. Uh, so then that's kind of the middle school, the bullying. It was hard. There are so many people that made it feel like it was just a piece of growing up. Like you had to go through this, a rite of passage. Like you, you had to feel like garbage. You had to be treated like crap from other kids in order to be a good adult. They always say like, you know, the popular ones, they end up, I don't know, flaming out or something. And the ones who are bullied and the nerds and the nobodies, they become the ones who run the world. So it's like, if you want to, be successful as an adult you have to be completely trampled as a child and that sucked um but that's kind of how it felt so that's the beginning and verging into middle so kind of in there as far as my mental health was concerned it was bullying two sexual traumas i'm calling one an encounter and one a trauma uh, and that's probably where the depression started and um you know, I just started not giving a damn, didn't want to go to school, which, which sounds like a normal teenager, but I was like, don't want to go to school. Not like, I don't want to go to school, but like, no, don't send me. So that's kind of the middle. Yeah. Uh, that's some big stuff. <laughs> a couple, couple things here and there. Hey. Yeah. I mean, but like the thing that a lot of people don't talk about is that Stuff like that happens all the time to kids of all ages and most people don't talk about it. And like you were saying about the really early stuff, you you can't even really put the timeline together because that's a natural instinct of kids is they 
they block out stuff and it still affects them but cognitively they can't just go oh yeah i remember this happened here then how yeah yeah it's not like you know now as as the police officer and training portion of me it's like okay so where was that situation report like let me read it there isn't one because i was five or six or five years old um i didn't even know how old the person who assaulted me was Mm-hmm. Like it was an after school babysitter and I know that they were still going to school. So I know they weren't over 18. So then there's a whole bunch of head game in that. Like, am I allowed to be mad? Do I get to be upset? Were they super young? Were they doing this because it happened to them? So are they actually a victim as well? Like there's just so much to unpack even in that one instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to try and figure it out now, 20 some odd years later. Yeah. Definitely. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a big thing. And the bullying is a big part of that too. I, I was a victim of bullying when I was a kid, um, mostly in team sports. That was, that was where I had a game of dodgeball. As long as I live, don't ever make me do it. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, my biggest one was hockey and soccer. Mm -hmm. Hockey Um, was the one that was born and bred that small town. And I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the thing. And yeah, cause I was a tall gangly little <laughs> kid. Um, I could skate. I couldn't handle a puck to save my life. And so I became the, the big kid that beat everybody up um, on the ice. But then off, I was an, I was an enforcer when I was playing hockey as a kid. Um, so on the ice, I was the big dude that got in everybody's way off the ice. I was the bottom, absolute bottom of the pecking order. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Hey, farm boy. Like, whatever. I uh, I tried out for volleyball in that small hockey town. I tried out for the volleyball team because I was like, you know what? That that was kind of like the other thing. A lot of the guys and a few of the girls did the hockey, and then a lot of them did the the volleyball. So I was like, I I can try for that. I want to try. I want to be a part of something. I made the team. It was great. I mean, it took a lot of effort to not make a team. Let's just, let's put that out there pretty thick. Like in order for you to not make a high school volleyball team in this town, it took a lot because there weren't a lot of kids. Right. And it was all about fair play and everything. And then uh, I left the tryouts or the, the gym class that they all had first met in or whatever the hell it was. And I was approached by three or four of the girls and said, you will be dropping off of this team and you'll be doing it before the end of the day. You are not a part of our team and we won't play with you. So you can do that. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. So I, yeah, nope, never really fit in with the sport life at all. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a big thing. And there's a lot of pressure, especially in Western Canada for sports and, yeah. and small towns even further than that. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, so big stuff, um, where, like, so that we left off kind of in high school. Yeah. After that, what kind of happened? Cause I know the middle, right, yeah. Like right at the end of high school, you started applying for, um, the RCMP, yeah. um, and you were looking at a career in law enforcement predominantly but you weren't 100% sure yet um now that's actually a question that I never thought of till now Mm -hmm. 
what, like through all of that, what made you go, I want to be a cop? Hmm. Oh, we get asked this question a lot in training, like a Mm -hmm. lot, a lot. Uh, and I have my easy answer. I really want to help people. I don't know. That's not it. That's my given. (laughs) My actual answer is a little bit, I call it dark and twisty. Um, it's a, it's a Grey's Anatomy reference and it's just what I call the inside of my soul basically is dark and twisty. And there's a couple pieces. There's the first one where it's like, I have experienced what it's like to be a victim and to have nobody there especially when like I didn't know better. I didn't know I was a victim. I thought I was just a kid playing a game with a big kid. Like I, I didn't know. And I never ever want another child or a person of any age to ever have to protect themselves and not be able to know how or not have the ability. Like I don't, I don't want to see somebody get taken advantage of it matters to me and it matters to me because it's happened to me too many times in the short span of 26 years. So that's kind of that side of it where it's like, I want to help people, but because of my past, then there's the me side of it, the selfish answer, if you will. But the selfish answer is, um, I've experienced a lot of shit. Like, and I'm not about to say that I've experienced more than everybody out there and like, woe is me definitely not. There are people who have gone through so much worse and come out the other side and so much worse and not come out the other side. You know, like it's a spectrum and I am, I am not putting myself on that one anywhere. I'm just saying that in my opinion of my life and my internal feelings, I feel like I keep getting dealt shit cards and I'm processing them, but there's something about associating or surrounding myself in a world of ugly, dark, disgusting, traumatic, violent situations that makes me feel comfortable. Uh, it's like if, if I have to be happy and bubbly and exciting every single day, I can do it, but it doesn't feel like I'm being overly authentic. Whereas when I go to a call and I'll give you an example of one, if I go to a call and um, I have to hold a six month old baby whose toenails are black and falling off because of whatever like impact or hot needles or whatever it was, which that is an ugly ass description, but that feels more comfortable. It's, it's using my pain as a superpower. If what I went through, I can't use, I can't say like, okay, I, I get what's happening here. I, I see this, I recognize it, I experienced it. Or I can't sit in, a, in an interview room with a six-year-old girl who says, you know, so-and-so touched me here and say, you're going to be okay because I was okay. If I can't take that dark and twisty, that ugly pain, that, that shit that I went through and I can't use it, then what the fuck was it for? Why did it happen? Like, did it just happen so that I have this great, awesome testimony someday when I'm born again, 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 Christian, and I stand there and I say my testimony, like, is that what it was for? Or like, like what? 
I don't know. And, and, and to me, being a police officer, it, it marries the two of those things really well. It helps me protect people that I feel so passionate about protecting, but it also makes me feel like I belong somewhere because honestly, I don't feel like I've ever belonged anywhere, not in radio, not in school, not on a sports team, not even in my own troop right now, like in training academy I, or training school. I don't feel like I belong anywhere. The place where I feel like I belong most is in really ugly situations because I can use it. That's my deep complex answer to policing and why the hell I'm here. Yeah, I totally get it. Um, and that's, that's something that's really important to keep in mind for anybody that's going through bad situations, whether it's just their mental state or if they're in a bad situation, domestically, family, friends, whatever it is, yeah. is that it all ends up being for a reason in a way. And I struggle with that statement because then it's like, oh, great. I'm going through this for a reason. It's like sometimes there isn't a reason, I think. No, I don't know. No. Just to like be a little bit devil's advocate here. Sometimes yeah. there is a reason. You just got to figure out how the fuck you grow from it, learn from it, and keep going with it. That's more what I mean. I, yeah. I don't mean that it's happening to make you into something, but mm -hmm. I do mean it's so I, um, I can't remember, um, where I heard this, but, um, there's a, there's an old saying that, um, God only gives you what you can handle. Mm. Well, that's in the Bible. It's a verse. <laughs> Is it? Okay. Yeah. I knew I couldn't remember where it was, like what book yeah. or anything, but I was pretty sure it was in there. He'll never give you more than you can handle. So like, keep going. I too, I think it might be in Psalm. I'm not positive, but yeah, yeah. that is a verse in the Bible. And that, and then I know this is um, a verse. It's a Psalm. Um, for I know the plans that I have laid for you. Mm -hmm. And I have that inlaid on my guitar. Uh, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Yeah, Something I know like that. what you're talking about. I'm no prolific uh, Bible scholar here. I said born again, 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 again for a reason. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. And you know what? When I was in, in high school and just coming out of high school, I still had a really strong grip on my faith. And I... I use that one a lot. And it was like, obviously I'm good. Like, obviously I can handle this because it happened. So otherwise maybe God would have let me get schmucked by a bus three years ago. So obviously another way I used to justify it, which I mean, healthy, I don't know, but justified it nonetheless. And it got me through was I would say, statistically speaking, some little kid had to be assaulted. Mm -hmm. Statistically speaking, some teenager had to be propositioned by the youth pastor. Statistically speaking, some 23-year-old had to wake up to being assaulted at a party. Statistically speaking, all of these things that happen that I look at as my shit, my darkness, my dark, my twisty, it had to happen to somebody. So you know what? As, as, since we're going, since we're going and God's making me strong and able and I can do this and I've already done it once and twice and three times, like, let's keep going. Because statistically speaking, it has to happen to someone. So I would rather it happen to me 
than it happened to another little girl. Or I would rather it happen to me than four other little girls or, or boys. I just obviously associate with girls. Yeah. Um, and that's how I justified it for the longest time. And I made it not hurt and not feel ugly and not feel like this baggage. And, and now the older I get, the harder it is to justify things away. Cause you start wanting actual answers, mm-hmm. not just really nice little fairy tales that make you feel good. But yeah. yeah. So. And I don't think things like that should ever be justified per mm-hmm. se. And we do that to ourselves and we, we do it to, to make it okay. But um, like you were saying for your reasoning why you wanted to be in law enforcement, I think that's what everybody needs to do as part of their recovery, whether it's from trauma or a mental illness that maybe isn't related to trauma. It might just be the condition that affects their daily life mm-hmm. is they have to look at it and use it as a tool. Yeah. And, and that's, that's all I could do with it. Exactly. That's, that's the only thing you can do with it. And that's the only way you can grow from it. And you use that to grow and yeah. whether, whatever it does for you or to you or with you, whatever it is, it has to be turned into something that's going to help you grow. Yeah, yeah. A superpower. It's, it's what like, I, call a, it. I say my kryptonite turned into my superpower. Like if, if it doesn't destroy me, it's got to make me better. You know, like it's either going to be your kryptonite or your superpower. You just got to pick which one it's going to be. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a decision you make every day. Might I add, I'm still in recovery. Um, and I have to pick that decision every day. And some days I pick kryptonite. Some days I just, I fucking fall apart and I don't function and it's hard. And you got to put yourself back together. Um, but we'll get to that. I, I like what you said there. You're still in recovery. Because mm. I think no one's ever out of. No. And like <laughs> uh, on a past podcast, I talked to my friend Mark Johnston. I was going to say you know. Mark will know this yes. really well. Yeah. And we talked about his struggle with addiction. And he never says he's a recovered alcoholic. He just mm-hmm. says, I'm a former alcoholic or I'm a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. or addict or whatever because he had other things than alcohol but that's the key point is you're never fully recovered from yeah. a mental illness or a mental trauma and that's that's something I know because I've had a lot of health issues and mm-hmm. so that's something I've discovered is that physically I'm fine now and mm-hmm. I'm out of it but went through so much physical pain and everything that affects your mental state Mm-hmm. And that never goes away. But like we were saying, it may not go away, but what you can do is you decide how you're going to use that and how it's going to affect you. And that's the only thing you can and, do. Yeah. And it, it takes time to get there too. Like oh, yeah. I am no Liz kid on this. Like I'm, I'm 26 and I'm still emailing my therapist a couple of times a week saying like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. This is what just happened this is it. And she talks me through it. Like I'm not above therapy. I tried many different therapists until I found one that I liked, um, which is just a a little asterisk to remember if you, if you are struggling and you say like, I tried counselors, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I completely agree with you. It is like, like buying underwear. 
the same underwear that worked for one person might not work for you because you're a different shape or you do different activities. I'm not sure why I picked underwear, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> but you know, like, I don't know. I, I wear different underwear when I work out than when I'm on duty. I, I don't know. You just, it's unique to each person is what I'm trying to say. I get you. I, I would have gone with vehicles. Sure. Vehicles. But I like the underwear analogy. <laughs> I don't know why I went underwear. <laughs> yeah. So, but that all came later. Like mm -hmm. that came later. I tried one counselor in, in middle school and it, it did not work at all. Like it didn't. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And it took until I was like 26 years old to find or 25 to find somebody that I could actually bear my soul to felt like it was safe. It was okay. But also got the, the amount back that I needed to keep functioning. Yeah. So, but we left off in middle school. Yes. Let's, which is a bitch for everyone. <laughs> so if you survived it, good on you. If you're still in it, keep going. You will survive it. I promise. And if you don't think you will make sure you're reaching out for help, but continuing down the rabbit hole, that is my brain and my psyche. Uh, we're graduated now. Woohoo! So graduated on a Thursday, moved to Australia Friday morning, 9 well, a.m. that plane left. Whoa. I, yeah. How did I, have you told me about, I didn't know about this. You didn't know I lived in Australia? No. Yeah. I've known you for how long and I never, okay. I was a nanny overseas. Um, so eventually we'll get to this point where i I have now been diagnosed with a borderline personality disorder, obviously PTSD as well. Uh, one of the symptoms of a borderline personality, borderline personality disorder um, is that I struggle to stay. <laughs> I struggle to stay put. Um, I, you know, there's, there's nine criteria for it. Um, and a lot of it is just, unstability so whether it be in relationships in your life in your employment things like that you're just very unstable so i moved to australia um my best friend got in a drinking and driving accident uh, a tv accident while i was overseas i think i had only been there a month and a half two months maybe and um she was what uh she was well, Kate, okay. no, she's still in a coma. So this is eight, nine years later, and she's not gone, but she's not here. So I, I always struggle with how to word that. She is in a coma. I don't see her ever waking up. And if she were to miraculously wake up one day, she will not have any life whatsoever to live, basically, by the way the accident went and her injuries and things. So, um, so that happened about a month after, you know, you get out of high school, you're ready to go. And then your best friend goes into a coma for the rest of her life and your life. So you process that. My family convinced me to not come home. They're like, Nemo wouldn't want, Naomi was her name. I called her Nemo. Uh, they're like, Nay wouldn't want you to come home. Stay, keep going. There's nothing you can do here. Like, stay. With so much money, stay. So I was like, okay, that fought against every ounce of my being but I did and then my great-grandmother started failing and I was like nope that's it if I stay in Australia more people are gonna die I'm coming home so I got on a plane uh, I landed I went directly to 
the hospital to Naomi first, saw her, got back in the car, drove to Portage, changed my clothes, got back in the car, drove to Brandon, and within 24 hours, my great-grandmother then died. Um, so that was my intro to being a team. Real good. Tried to spread my wings and fly. Ended up coming home because big people in my life started, you know, disappearing. And um, I wouldn't even take any of those as traumatic. They were just, they were really hard and I struggled to process them. But I would say that when I got home and I started trying to find some normality or some normalcy uh, is when I started to spiral even more. In high school, I had one suicide attempt that nobody knew about. Uh, it was, again, prescription medication. I am pretty sure my parents will listen to this, and this will also be news to them. I don't even think they knew that. Um, so there was an attempt in high school. Didn't work. Woke up the next day once again and just kept going to school. So now I still have depression. I'm going in and out of it. I still think it's just from high school and the bullying and you know, some lingering side effects of the really early trauma, but nothing I can't handle. And then life starts piling on bills, relationships, buying a house in the pub because my boyfriend, RCMP officer got transferred and now we're moving. And like, when the hell did this happen? Why am I here? What is going on? Um, you know, and then you move one relationship fails after another, after another, after another, are they all bad guys? Nope, some of them perfectly great options, but nothing, every time something happened, it just felt, it felt like my own brain would just catapult it, like just throw it off into the abyss and say, nope, psych, go that way. And it was just like I was zigging and zagging everywhere. I could not find a, a fucking train of thought, a smooth path. At all. If you had asked me when I was 16 what my life would look at, I would have swore that by 1920 I was going to be married and I'd be done having kids by the time I was 24. And I wanted like three of them or four of them. I'm 26. I rent a basement bedroom in Brandon while I go to college. <laughs> Fuck, did shit not happen the way I thought it would? You know, when I was 19, I was buying a house in the paw with my boyfriend that for all intents and purposes, I should probably be looking at marrying since, you know, we're buying a house and it just doesn't happen. And, you know, and then life happens and things got worse. And I just got it. It got harder to pick myself up each time something fell, you know, the little jokes, you know, like, yes, I have moved 32 times uh, since I was 18. I'm 26 now. And there's jokes coming out the yin yang. Oh, did you move this month? Or where are you now? I can never keep track. And they're so innocent, but man, did they hurt me. Man, did they hurt. They, they pinged because nobody wanted to settle down and have a stable life more than me. I craved it. I wanted it. Every single move. I thought I'm going to stay here. I'd unpack every single box on every single move. And it never worked. About every three months I ended up moving. I'd blame it on jobs. I would blame it on better money somewhere else. I would blame it on rent being too high or my roommate, you know, leaving her fucking joints in my coat pocket when she borrowed my jacket, when she'd go out, you know, I'd have, I'd have something every time and man, it was valid and it would sound good, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything that couldn't be worked through. 
uh, got into radio after a deferral from Ray, um, from my RCMP processing. They said, you know, you need, you're a little young, go get some life experience. And I started working and I ended up on a morning show eventually. And it was in that segment of time that everything really took a hard swerve and turn. So that's going to be the next part of the story. If you want to unload anything from the middle. <laughs> Uh, I think you unpackaged it very well. No, oh, thank you. I'm really good at opening presents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So continue. This is, um, uh, I know this is where some realizing, realizing yeah. happened for you. This is where some ugly starts coming in. Um, so I was in the morning show and I still, I wasn't feeling good at this point. I was, burning the candle at both ends, going real hard, really not coming up for air. Winnipeg on the weekends to do my weekend show with Virgin, but then back Monday to Friday doing a morning show from like, I don't know, you get up at like four o'clock in the morning so you can be on the air for five, 5.30 and you're there till noon. And then it was, it was a schedule that was all over the place. And then my, my Virgin schedule was like on the air at noon till six. So it's like talk about an opposite. And my poor body just was all along for the ride. Like it was just coming with me wherever my brain was taking it. And my brain was basically saying, don't stop working. Cause if you stop working, you're going to start thinking. And if you start thinking, you're going to realize just how messy everything really is. Like in your brain, in your heart, in your soul, whatever it is in your fucking bank account, just don't stop working. And that was kind of my mentality. So I didn't. And, um, and then I was on the phone with an ex-boyfriend who is, I'm very good friends with still. I was on the phone with him and it was maybe a week or two, a week before Christmas. And I distinctly remember, I can't remember what we were talking about, but I remember the phone up to my ear and me specifically thinking when I hang up this phone, I will either kill myself and end it all and stop complaining and stop you know, this false trying, stop attempting to figure it all out. I'm just going to stop and I'm going to die. Or I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to pack a bag. I'm going to pick up my keys and walk out my door. And I'm going to drive to the Brandon, City of Brandon General Hospital Emergency Room, whatever the title is. And once again, I pack the bag. I picked up the keys and I walked out the door. I guess not once again. I hadn't actually done that one. I, I attempted at this point a couple of times loosely, um, but I had never drove to the hospital and said, I'm not okay. So I went into triage and at this point, I don't really know what you're supposed to say or how you're supposed to do it. There's no roadmap. I didn't Google it because God only knows what would come up with. How do you tell the hospital you want to kill yourself? I don't know. Let's read some Reddit threads. Like just, no, I'm, I'm so... <laughs> at this point I'm just so tired and so defeated and so done that I don't even care about doing something right so I walk in the nurse starts triaging me she says what seems to be the matter I say something I think I said my head really hurts or something like I can't get rid of a headache and she's like oh okay send me back the doctor comes back so I hear you have a headache and I said no I didn't know what to tell the nurse but this is what's actually wrong I want to die of course, um, they, you know, 
they hook me up. They, it's a long ass wait for this hookup, but they do. And eventually a person comes and talks to me and they're like, okay, tell me what you're feeling. Tell me how you're doing. And so we go through this and then I get a psychiatrist assigned to me. The next day I see a psychiatrist. Now I know, by the way, side note, um, that doesn't happen a lot where you actually get help when you say you need help. I ran into many people coming across my path and asked me how I got help. And I said, I went to the hospital and said I needed help. And they said, I did that. And they told me to go home. I got nothing. I have no idea why I was so lucky to be handed the help that I got. I have no idea why before I left the hospital, they made sure I was set up with a crisis worker and I had crisis meetings, which meant they called me every 12 or six hours to make sure I was still alive. And if I wasn't, they sent the police. I have no idea why somebody chose for me to get the proper care that everyone deserves and not somebody else. And I hate it. I hate it, hate it, hate it. Because I feel like I cheated the system somehow, which is really stupid. And it says something about our mental health system in this country. If somebody who survives it and gets what they deserve feels like they've cheated it. I don't. So if you're trying, all I can say is don't stop. Keep pushing. Like Keep advocating for yourself because nobody knows what's going on in your brain and your body more than you do. So I pushed and I said this is what's wrong. I am not okay. If you let me go, I promise something will happen. Like it's going to, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to It'll probably be pills because then I can go to sleep and I really like sleeping. And they hooked me up with everything. I saw a psychiatrist the next day who ended up being a complete dingbat. And I use that full fledged. <laughs> there are other words I could use, but we'll understand why I think he's a dingbat in a little bit. Fast forward, they put me on some medications to try different things for intense depression or clinical depression. I went home for the holidays and uh, my parents knew everything. I was, on, I was on the suicide watch still with the crisis line, got my new meds, started taking them and I started feeling better. And I was like, okay, I'm better, I'm good, this is good. But then I started to slip again. And so then they'd raise the meds and then I'd be better for a little bit. Then I'd slip again. So they raised the meds. And then I started Googling because I was like, something's just still not right. I just know in my heart, in my soul, something's not right. And um, all of my symptoms that I, a 23-year-old DJ, thought I could Google diagnose. Now we, sound, we see how absurd this sounds, right? <laughs> I... <laughs> Right? A 23-year-old diagnosing off of Google and what she got behind her but a DJ, like a microphone. I mean, I'm just curious what you found. I found bipolar. And I took it to my psychiatrist and I said, what about this? Could it be this? Because I Googled and this is what came up and it sounds like it's me. He literally sat there, Justin. He sat there and he said, huh. Yeah, yep, that, that could be. That could be it. I said, okay, so what do we do? He's like, all right, let me start you on some lithium. The highest fucking drug you can do for bipolar is where we started. And I, the 23-year-old girl who Googled this, sorry, not even girl, the 23-year-old person who Googled this, 
said, and we didn't, I didn't do it. I didn't do a test. I didn't do a survey. I didn't do a, let's talk about this. I didn't do an evaluation, nothing. Lithium and a couple others that went with it. I, I don't remember. So that was my, that is why I think he's a dingbat because he was a dingbat. Listen to a girl Googling things, listen to a person Googling things, so whatever. This continued a really fast little thing about bipolar as I understand it is when you have bipolar, let's say your, your level is five. You know, if your, if your hormones, your chemicals, everything is a one to 10, you want your levels at a five, right in the middle, nice and balanced, right? When you're bipolar, you're at a zero. So you take that medication to bring you up to a five. When you're not bipolar and you take the bipolar medication, it creates the exact same symptoms of bipolar. It pushes you down to a zero, basically. Like it does the adverse reaction. So because I ended up not having bipolar, I was misdiagnosed and then therefore mismedicated, I was creating bipolar symptoms in myself. Uh, so then morning show continues. I'm on all these medications going through something's not right, bump them up. Still not feeling good, bump them up. Get transferred to Regina. Start my job at Bell Media in Regina. Feeling okay, because every time I move, I'm solid for about a month. And then everything kind of falls off again. A week before I was set to go on a vacation with my company, um, I had a really bad week. And this is where some ugly things come out again. I wrote a suicide note. I had been commuting fuck me. I was commuting from Regina to Brandon on an almost daily basis. I think I slept a collective of 20 hours in those seven days, which sounds an awful lot like a manic episode, which is what people thought I was having. Um, because you know, it's when you don't sleep, you have all this energy, you go, you go, you go, you go, you go until your body physically quits. And it can be wild. And honestly, that's what I thought I was, I was doing too, you know? So anyways, um, I remember I was having a bath one night and I said, I can't do it again. I'm done. I can't. I tried to get help. I went to the doctor. I'm taking the meds. I'm doing everything aside from exercising because I really fucking hate running. I'm not doing that. Aside from that, I'm doing everything everyone has told me to do. And I am not getting better. At this point, you need to hear the tears of frustration. It's not even in my voice anymore. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, you know, like up until this point, there was, there was one day where I accidentally took too many of my medication and I forgot how many I had taken. So I took more because I didn't think I had taken them. And then it again, and then I didn't think it, and I was basically overdosing unintentionally. And I came home, I called apparently one of my girlfriends and said, something is going on. I don't even know, like, I don't remember this. She sent her boyfriend to come and get me. He picked me up off my kitchen floor, apparently surrounded by shattered plates and glasses and mugs. Like I had just thrown everything out of my cabinets and broke them all and started going at my arms and my legs with the shards of glass. Like this is how, and I pushed through. And that Monday, where was I? I was at work wearing fucking jeans and a long sleeve sweater in September or January, July, fucking whatever month it was. Uh, it was hot out. It was summer and I was wearing long sleeves. That's all I remember. 
because I was completely like my arms are completely cut up. My legs are completely cut up. I'd never been a cutter. It made no sense. Even while I, I had to, I kind of dabbled in it afterwards too, like, and, and knowing what was happening while I was doing it. It's like this, what am I doing? This is insane. Like I don't cut, I, I don't even like getting needles. Like what the hell? That's just what mental health does to you. It literally forces your body to do things that you might not want to do. So um, I wrote the suicide notes where I'm jumping all over. I, I'm realizing I'm missing pieces that matter. And, that's yeah, okay. That, that's what this is all about. So then um, I'm in the bathtub. I write the suicide note. I send it to, again, this really good friend who knows how to pick me up. I send it to him and I'm like, this is where I'm at. Like, I'm, I don't know how to keep going. I have been fighting this and fighting this and fighting this for years now. And I don't know how much longer I can do it for. I'm just tired. I'm just so tired. I want to curl up in a ball and stop because I'm tired of fighting it. I'm tired of fighting it. I think life is great. I think life could be amazing. I want to have all these amazing things. I want to have a husband. I want to have kids want to maybe have a wife we're still working on things there but you know like i want a family <laughs> i want these things but like i'm tired i'm just so tired and he picked me up and he got me going again and he pushed me through and some of the methods were not the most beneficial when somebody's in a committed relationship but at the end of the day i was fucking alive so whatever right i got on a plane Within 24 hours for Mexico, I'm supposed to be as happy as you could ever be. You're in paradise. You're with a person who loves you. You're doing all these things. You're with a company that you also love. And shit hits the fan. And all I want to do in Mexico is jump off my balcony and hit the pavement below. That's all I want to do. There are some aggravating factors, you know, that just kind of spiked everything up a few notches. But at the end of the day, bottom line is I was not okay. So from my hotel room in Mexico, within an hour of starting and finishing, I gave up my apartment, quit my job, broke up with my boyfriend who was in Mexico with me. So that's not the easiest thing. Don't break up with people when you're in foreign countries, not the best, especially on business trips. And I got on a plane. I got on a plane 12 hours later, um, at the expense of a very amazing human being who paid for my ticket and him and his wife and and it saved me because I needed to I needed home got off a plane my aunt and uncle picked me up because they happened to be in Regina for whatever insane reason my aunt and uncle from Brandon happened to be in Regina to pick me up off a plane they did and they they helped put me back together until they could get me back to my parents they got me back to my parents and I never went back to Regina my dad went back packed up my apartment moved me home I did nothing. I was broken. Um, but I have always been told that you push through and you don't quit and you keep going. And so not two weeks later, I had another job in front of a microphone lined up and ready to go. And I remember distinctly thinking, I feel like I need actual help here. Like, like this just, it's not working. I found a new doctor. We started going through everything. That's when she started shining the light. I don't even think you're bipolar, Randy. I'm like, good God. Like, I don't even know who to listen to at this point. I've had doctors say that I'm, you know, depression, no anxiety, no 
bipolar, no, like all of these things, like, and, and I don't even know what to believe anymore. Fast forward to the 1st of July-ish, Canada Day in there. It was the day before Dauphin Country Fest started, and once again, I attempted suicide. Um, this time, I feel like there's a lot more effort behind it. And now I know that you had some questions in here and some specific parts you wanted me to highlight. So, yeah. So, um, with this, you uh, similar to your experience in high school, use mm -hmm. pills. Mm -hmm. And they knocked you out. Yeah. And you slept. I'm assuming you had an amazing sleep. <laughs> yeah, it was a little dopey when I woke up. Yeah. But yeah, it was, a, it was a good, deep, long, nice sleep. But I woke up, so. And so my first question is, what was the immediate feeling when you woke up? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I wish it was something more intelligent and I wish it was a, you know, a better word, but it wasn't. It was, fuck, it was, I woke up. Okay, mm -hmm. all right, well, time to go to work. <laughs> and no, I'm not laughing because it's funny. No, I know, it, it's not a laugh because it's funny. It's a laugh because you don't even know what else to do because at this point, it's just, it, it's mind-numbing. It's like, seriously? Like, what else What else do you do? I don't even know. It's like, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. It's that kind of laugh. Yeah, I totally get it. And so you were working for a radio station. You decided, well, that didn't work. What's next on the to-do list? Oh, go to work to a music festival. Now, <laughs> I, I just, I don't know how else to phrase it. That just seems like it kind of fits. Yeah. What? kind of led you to that like what was the mindset going into a weekend at manitoba's largest music festival <laughs> right after you tried to end your life and nobody knows about it except you and you're supposed to be the happiest person ever and like yeah party country music <laughs> country fact yeah then. yeah bright bubbly blonde that you hear on the radio and yeah okay so so i woke up you know um at least my room was clean because the night before like when i had attempted i, I cleaned up my room because my, my dad's a paramedic and i was like there's gonna be paramedics in here and last thing i want is my dad to be embarrassed because my dirty clothes are on the floor so i had a clean room clothes were put away so i mean that's a plus i guess i don't even know but i got up got ready, went into work, got the station car, picked up my, um, my best friend, girlfriend, Jenna. Um, she got a sitter for the kids and her and I were going to go to country fest. She knows nothing. Uh, we drive up, we take pictures that are actually framed on my bedroom wall, which is ironic. I never necessarily cognitively put that together. That was a, so, but anyway, um, we took some of our favorite photos of each other ever. You know, I got my hair done because I was going to be hosting and stuff. And um, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard to articulate what I was feeling. You know, there's 10,000 people at Country Fest. And you have to be loud and bubbly and exciting enough to capture 
majority of their attention. That's your job as the radio station. You walk around to every single campsite, you talk to every single person, you hand out free swag, you, you hang out with them, you make them laugh, you take pictures, you potentially, depending on the station, you sign autographs. And, and um, knowing that not even 24 hours before that, I was ready to end my life and still was still was very ready for it to be over. Like if there was a bolt of lightning and it hit me, it'd be like, great delayed reaction, God, but thank you so much. That was what I was going for. But I was still open to it. I was by no means. Okay. At all. Like that weekend, I smoked weed in the Creek while drinking with a Southern rock band. Now, if you know me, <laughs> you know that all of those things are not my usual MO. I was, I was not functioning. I was putting on a smile. I was putting on a face and I was going out there. And the scariest part, Justin, and this is what I say over and over again, is you never know who is struggling. Because I was the loudest, happiest, bubbliest argumentatively not the ugliest you know like I looked like I should have a silver spoon shoved up my ass somewhere with the horseshoe and everything was laid out on a silver platter I should not be the one that people would look at and and worry about what I was um so yeah it was I don't know it's just I can't quit and if I can't quit for good then I just can't quit you gotta keep going you gotta keep going um, and then I, you know, so I hosted all weekend. I, once again, I don't think I slept. I drove back and forth from Dauphin Country Fest. I think I slept collectively seven hours in four days. And then I hosted Canada Day main stage in Portage the Prairie, which same idea. You are the loudest person. You're the only person everyone is looking to. After Canada Day wrapped up the next morning at 9am, I had a standing appointment with my, um, psychiatrist. And I said, this is what happened. This was my plan. This is how it went. And she said, okay, we have two options here. One, obviously this bipolar medication isn't working, so we can slowly take you off of it and find zero, like find baseline Randy and go from there. Or you can go to the hospital and we can take you off of it tonight. So then came the most not embarrassing one of the hardest hits to my pride. Is that a good way to word it? Yeah, I, 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 see what you're, <clears throat> I see what you're saying. It wasn't embarrassing. I wasn't making a Facebook status about it. But at the same time, if somebody asked, I, I wasn't going to lie. Um, but it, it felt like, well, you know what? It didn't even, it didn't even feel, so I was admitted to hospitals is, is where this is. And, um, so I went to Eden Mental Health Facility where I stayed for 18 days from the 1st of July to the 18th of July. And um, in the beginning, I was embarrassed by it. I'm still not embarrassed by it. Um, in the beginning, I think it was a bit of a hit to my pride, but more than anything, holy fuck, I've never been so scared in my life, Justin. And I've seen some pretty ugly demons. I've, I've woke up to people assaulting me. 
And I had enough composure about me to keep my eyes closed and and say, if I just lay here long enough, he'll finish, it'll be done. And then I can just go back to sleep. Like that was the last, that was the, the assault at 22 while I was working at Virgin Radio. So there was a third one in there. Um, and like, that's the composure I have while being assaulted. I did not have that going to a mental health facility because I was terrified about what would be on the inside. Terrified. I mean, you see all these movies of asylums and padded walls and people with scraggly hair and like craze in their eyes. And I was scared. I was so scared that, um, for the first three weeks I put, well, first two week and a half, two weeks, I put my bed in my closet and I slept in the closet on the floor at the hospital because I was scared. I was uncomfortable. I was, somewhere I didn't think I would ever end up yeah yeah that's a that's a tough thing and that's a really big step in recovery and like you said you'd searched for help before but Mm -hmm. I think I think there's a trend with anybody who has mental illness um and i think the same goes for addiction uh, mental illnesses and anything like that where a, a lot of people find help multiple times and they all they're 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 hard they yes you have to take that step but it usually takes a few times before it really sets in and when it sets in it's really scary. And so I, I'm just saying that listening to your experience with this, where you had multiple times where you found help and you tried things and it kind of worked and then it didn't and uh, kept sliding downhill. And then finally it hit a point where it was legitimately terrifying and it was some serious, serious stuff happening towards recovery that it really hit you. And that just seems like a, a really common thing with people that have mental health problems is it does, it's not the very first time. No. Even, if, even if you find somebody that works well, um, therapist-wise or counselor or psychiatrist, whatever it is, even if yeah. you find that person that works for you, it's not the first thing you try all the time that's going to work. No, it's not the first medication. It's not the first counselor. It's not the first, um, you know, crisis plan. It's not the first bad day. It's, it's never the first thing that takes you out. No. Cause it's not, it's not the strength of the event that takes you out. It's the, the strength of the afterglows. Well, I, I envision it as you have a backpack on and mm-hmm the first thing that ever happens to you is a marble that gets dropped in the backpack. Yeah. And everything after that is another marble, another marble, another marble. And you can have like 20 marbles in your backpack that it's not going to phase you. It's a, it's a freaking marble. Who cares? Mm-hmm. 
And most people, I feel like, have a little drain at the bottom where the marbles kind of go out, so there's always an equilibrium. But Mm -hmm. when you're struggling with it, the marbles pile up. And all of a sudden, you have thousands of marbles in your backpack, and there's like a couple hundred pounds on your back. And you can't handle it at that point. And it may be small things, but they pile up, and they become really heavy. Yeah. And so it's, it's a thing over time and the marbles can be every day. So it happens within a matter of months. It can be over a matter of years, but eventually they're going to pile up and be so heavy that you physically cannot handle it anymore. Because when you have a mental thing and this is the way I kind of see it when it happens for me, I'm, I don't know if you do, but it feels physical it feels like an actual weight on like for me on my body that I feel weighed down. Yeah. You feel heavy. You feel tired. You know, it's like, it's like when you've had a good night's sleep, you you feel good. Now energy can like pop around, flight, flow like a butterfly, sting like a bee, something like that. You know, like you're good, you're agile, but like if you haven't had a good night's sleep, your feet are dragging, you're like, God, I can't even move my head. There's some mornings I shower and like the 20 pounds of hair feels like 50 pounds, like a hundred percent. It comes out physically. And you know, if you're, if you're not feeling good physically, like look to your mental health. Sometimes if there's no answers, like I went through some physical stuff and no one could find answers. No one could find answers. And you know what? That whole time it was probably mental. Not that I was faking it, but that that's how my, mental anguish was coming out of my body was coming out physically oh 100 because the this is just a theory of mine but the human body isn't built to have the mental issues that a lot of people have and so it comes out physically and it affects your because your brain controls everything in your body i just move my hand and that's because of my brain and so that happens and something when I real really really realized that I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and when I was stressed or having anxiety my Crohn's went through the freaking roof yeah and that was because it's connected and anybody who says it's not connected is an idiot (laughs) (laughs) um anyways but yeah so it's a very physical thing now when you were uh in the hospital what what was kind of the process for you and not not even your process but i i'm just curious for myself and i think it's good for listeners to know what the process was over those 18 days what what was the plan what was the steps that were taken to help you and once those steps were taken where were you at were you feeling way better and Mm -hmm. like it was manageable at that point and you could legitimately start on your recovery or was there still a really long road ahead and you weren't you still weren't ready to fully step into recovery journey yeah um okay well you show up uh, and you meet kind of your nurse or your your specific one-on-one worker go to your room you get settled they go through all of your belongings they take away half of it (laughs) Take away everything that, depending on why you're there, uh, things that are pertinent. So, um, hoodies with strings, 
toothbrush, hairbrush, deodorant, and like anything. They take anything and everything away. Pencils, pens, soap pads, coil, bounds, scribblers. So you're left with comfy clothes. Uh, and in my case, a teddy bear, because <laughs> that was, you know what, fuck, we're talking about it all. Let's throw this one in there. So yeah, you know, you have whatever gives you a little bit of comfort. Uh, I promptly moved my bed into my closet, made my bed in my closet, stayed in my closet. Um, and then it was, you know, meals are set times in the day. And in between that, there's different, um, different activities. There's a group therapy session uh, in the morning. Then there's, you know, some sort of activity, whether it be art class or whether it be writing or reading, whatever it is that kind of is therapeutic to you. I personally really like art. So I would do the art class. And if you didn't do therapy, you didn't get to do art. So you had to do the work too. It wasn't just the vacation. <clears throat> not that not that I ever confused it for one second as a vacation. Um, you got set meals. Your meals went by Canada's health guidelines. And because unless your doctor said you could have more, then you got one helping of everything. It was all predetermined. And sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was awful. I never realized um, how much I liked cheese whiz until it wasn't an option. Growing up, if it was an option, I never chose it. But the moment that option was taken away, I was like, I want the cheese whiz, okay? Just some cheese whiz. So we, ate, we ate toast a lot. Um, and then the evening, you'd do some free time. Uh, one thing for me that always makes me feel better is bathing. So water makes me feel calm, makes me feel better. It is not abnormal for me to have a bad day and have four or five baths. That's normal you're only allowed one maybe and it's supervised so you're 25 well, i'm 25 and i'm having a bath or having a shower and there's a woman a nurse maybe a 50 year old nurse or something you know and she's sitting there on her chair reading her book watching me bath to make sure i don't kill myself while i'm in there and eventually you just keep doing things and you earn privileges. So eventually, you know, I earned the right to have a bath alone, but I got checked on every six minutes. And all through the entire day, you're checked on every 15 minutes. Every 15 minutes, someone is peeking in at you while you sleep, while you bathe, while you eat. They're, they're constantly watching you. Um, I'm not making this sound like a really great place. It is a good place. You know, I, I didn't feel terrified my whole time I was there. Eventually I got used to it. Um, and you see your doctors every, every day, every other day, sometimes. Um, and so in my case, I saw a psychiatrist, but then I also saw a specialist, um, for ADHD. And then I also saw somebody else and I don't actually know what she did, but she did all the evaluations to decide, you know, like what spectrums I was or wasn't on or what I may have and things like that. And they all work as a team. And then every morning the doctors have a big meeting with the nurses from the night before and the day before and they talk about okay how did this person do and then they're like and you're basically you're evaluated you're being evaluated every second of the day to see how you actually function how you react to things what you think what you don't think all of these things and so by the time i went in i was medicated for bipolar and depression when i came out i had no medications and a diagnosis of um, borderline personality disorder 
ADHD, and PTSD, none of which I took medication for. So I went from being heavily medicated to not medically medicated. Um, I had one seizure while coming off the medication and was taken to the hospital by ambulance. Um, I have def deficit that I use that term loosely. I have like spasms. I have little things that were never things before I was on the medication that I deal with now, kind of side effects. So I have really wicked bad migraines a lot. Um, I have a kind of like a facial spasm, a body spasm, lung spasm, all things. It happens when I get anxious and I never had it before. Um, yeah, so that's a kind of lost, but that's kind of the process. That's what it looks like. It's, you hopefully have your own room. We had enough beds open that I was able to have my own room. Um, you meet some people that you would never normally associate with because we were from all sorts of walks of life. Like we had some very religious people. Um, we had some very uh, creative thinkers, <laughs> say, um, you know, and, and there was there was the safe room. There was the room that they would put somebody in if things were getting out of control and they were possibly going to hurt themselves. And, and you listen to that person scream a lot all night in one case. And it was scary. Um, but I knew that going there and, and being out of my comfort zone and not doing what I had done before was going to be the only chance I had at surviving because you know the saying, doing something over and over and over again, expecting a different result is insanity. So the only thing I hadn't done was go to the hospital and be hospitalized. So I did it. Am I recovering? Yes. I, um, I came out of the hospital, slowly started back to work. By slowly, I mean that weekend I hosted Halloween Moon Music Festival with like 3,000 people on the main stage the whole weekend, introduced massive artists that I grew up with. You know, like nothing like taking it easy, hey? That was my first time back in the saddle, but as far as therapy goes, I found a therapist in the city that is, that was more than I thought I could afford, but at the same time, it was like, I guess I just, you know, this is what you gotta do. This is what I have to do, so we have to figure it out. And went to therapy twice a week, um, group therapy, individual therapy, and now uh, a year and a half later, I still go to individual therapy. I did um, DBT therapy, so it, it gives you the skills to basically function with emotional disorders and, and mental disorders. So that's that's my story. Now I'm recovering. Every day is a struggle. There's some days that are absolutely great. There are some days where those marbles are still 200 pounds, as you put it, um, and it's hard. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and I really appreciate you walking through the hospital experience because that's something. Well, like you were saying, you see movies and mm -hmm. you hear about stories, and you just imagine this crazy place where everybody's rocking back and forth saying that they're going to get me. They're going to get me. Yeah, it's, and it's, yeah. And I just, I, I was curious 
Like, because I know they're not like that. And but what are they like? Like, you know that it's not what the movie makes it look like. But then what is it? If it isn't that, what is it? Exactly. Anyway, points for that kind of is what it will feel like. Um, there were there were moments, but there were fine moments. I watched movies. I got into coloring. I kind of kept to myself, which doesn't usually happen. You know, it, it was okay. And I would encourage it if anybody feels like they've tried everything, they've exhausted everything. I'm not saying like run after this idea full fledged, but like don't discount it or discredit mm-hmm. it. If somebody brings it up to you, if a professional brings it up to you, you know, it was hard for me to go. My, my therapist, her name was um, Dr. Carter, or not my therapist, my psychiatrist, Dr. Carter in Portage, who's amazing, by the way. Um, she said, what do you want to do? Remember when she gave me those two options? Yeah. And I looked at my mom, I looked at my dad, I looked at her, and I kind of just had this look on my face. I'm like, God, I hope somebody can make this decision for me. And she said, or do you not want to decide? Do you want me to, to take this decision away from you? And and make the choice for you. And I said, I, I cannot make that decision to do this. Like, it's too hard. I know I want to, but to say it almost feels dramatic or attention seeking. Like I need to be told that this is what's happening and I have no choice because that's the only way I'm going to believe that it's not me making up some big attention seeking plan, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That That's, that's a big thing is, accepting that you need help and making it okay in your head and that it's not selfish. It's not wrong to need it or want it. It's okay. And especially if you're advised by a medical professional that that's what you need, that's what you need. And um, something that, and with, when it's an actual physical treatment and it's not just medication i think it's even more important because with your experience is a great illustration of something i believe where you should try everything but medication first and Mm -hmm. there's a place for the medication 100 percent, but i definitely think that is overused i do too i think a lot of people are quick to prescribe that being said if your medical professional is saying that you should take medication do not not take it. Take yes. that medication. But listen to your body. If something still doesn't feel right, advocate for yourself. So mm-hmm. for me, I was I took the medication. They said take it. I said how much? You know, jump how high. But every time I recognized that something wasn't right with my body, I didn't just ignore it and keep going. Or I didn't just take myself off my meds and say, I know best, it's not good for my body. I'd keep taking them make an appointment and say something is not right. Yes. And yeah, I took a lot of fighting and yeah, I took a lot of meds that I didn't need to take. And yeah, I, I have side effects of that, but I'm also alive. Exactly. And you never know how many times those, those wrong meds maybe gave me just enough of something to keep me going, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely listen to your body and advocate for yourself, but also you're told to take something take it. Yeah. <laughs> Do it. Exactly. It's, it's always worth a try. Unless you have a real good frank conversation with your doctor beforehand and say, I don't want to, this is why. And they agree, but it's, it's gotta be a team effort. It, it can't be you against the world and it can't be them against you. Exactly. It has to be in conjunction. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
thank you for sharing all this and your story and being so You're open. Welcome. I feel like I did a lot of the talking. <laughs> that was the point. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to hear you. And I mean, I've heard a lot of this just in conversation, but there was a couple mm-hmm. things that were new for me. Like I didn't know you were a nanny on Australia. I knew you were a nanny. <laughs> of the whole thing, this is what Justin picked. <laughs> no, you're there's... a nanny. That's so cool. I knew you were a nanny, but I didn't know it was an Australian. Anyways, beside <laughs> the point, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Anyways, I really do appreciate it. And I think this is really important. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad we got to do this, especially right now, just with the, the day that's coming up. And mm-hmm. a point that I should make is it's not just about Bella's talk day. It's about every day. Every day yeah. should be a day to have this conversation. Yeah. I, I agree. And, you know, like some of my drive home points that I used to make on my Bell Let's Talk shows when I was hosting were the stigma. There's, there's, there's no shame in asking for help. There's no shame in having a struggle and being open about that struggle. There's no shame in keeping that private either. As Even though we're taking the stigma off things, it doesn't mean that just because you have a mental health struggle or an experience that you need to stand on the soapbox and advocate for all other people there are people who feel drawn to do that or led to do that that does not have to be you if you want to privately keep your matters to yourself don't let days like today also influence you and and make you feel uncomfortable that you need to speak out or say something you are not comfortable you're not comfortable and that is okay um there's people like me who just naturally don't shut up We'll take it. We'll take a hit on this. It's okay. You know, another one is there's no shame in meditation. Absolutely not. It is literally there because there's 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 some sort of something chemical that's missing in your body, and it's it's no different than taking a vitamin. Exactly. There's no shame in your medication. There's no shame in your story. There's no shame in being private. Um, and then there's also no shame in whatever treatment you have to go through to get better. The important thing is you get better. And um, and if anybody wants to penalize you for that after the fact, well, they deserve their ass to get kicked, first of all, <laughs> honestly. But second of all, that's okay. Because you know what? You're here. And you're getting better. And you're getting happier. And you're getting healthier. So fuck it. Just keep pushing. And excuse all my language because I use a lot of it this time. But. Yeah, those are usually my drive home points as well. So if you take anything from this long-winded, almost two-hour podcast, that's my takeaway. Just keep going, advocate for yourself, listen to your body, and don't be embarrassed about anything or ashamed of anything. I think that sums it up. Sick. (laughs) 